Good morning. Uh, let me kick off in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are once again honoured, privileged, and uh, so thankful to be here in your house, to be here among your people, to be here with our family. Uh, we are here today because we, uh, as we, we heard from Stu, as we've sung, we recognise that we give our lives to you because you first gave your life for us. And as we ate that bread and we drank the juice, the wine, the cup, the blood, we just re reflected on the physical aspect of your death, but also the, the spiritual death that you bore on that cross, which was, which was the more grievous to have that separation from your Father in a unique way that uh, we cannot even begin to comprehend and no doubt we'll track down for an eternity trying to understand it. But Father, we're thankful this morning for that, chiefly for your Son. And in what way we can, we just ask that you'd set our hearts, affection and mind's attention now to your word, your breath, as we... Um, submit ourselves to it as hard as it's going to be. Amen. We're not in Peter, we're in James. We are in James. We've been tracking through James now for a couple of uh, months, actually. Um, if you've not been here, uh, we're on a hiatus from Nehemiah while Pastor Terry and his family are enjoying vacation abroad. Um, so all five chapters of, of James, verse by verse, in a mere ten weeks, such a feat is truly extraordinary for uh, Calvary Chapel, <laughs> given our commitment to verse by verse exposition. But, you know, there's, there's no other way. Uh, we are unashamedly um, committed to the doctrine of the uh, sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. The, the, everything that the Bible affirms to be true is true. Um, and and we, we take that not just on faith, there's, there's good reasons for that as well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's profitable, everything in this book is profitable for life and for godliness. And so that is why, you know, we don't need to keep your attention with another series every couple of weeks. Not that there's any problem with that, uh, but we're just, we believe that this is all you need. So we just walk through it. That's what we've been doing through James. That's what we're doing in Nehemiah. Um, but uh, we're going to continue on today, uh, and we're in the fourth chapter. Um, we went through the first half last week, up to verse 10. Uh, we're only going to be doing two short verses today, uh, but let me just say, uh, by way of introduction, um, probably more for my sake, because uh, I'm coming into the line here of a, a bunch of great guys before me who've been sharing the word with you. So let me just reorient us now in the book of James, where we are, what we've looked at, how we're tracking, and then we'll dive in. Uh, when it comes to studying the Bible, uh, you're faced with basically two major challenges to, to be really reductionistic. You've got the mental challenges of trying to understand what the Bible has to say. But then you also have the moral challenges of trying to apply what the Bible has to say to your life. 
James is not so much of a mentally challenging book. It's got moments here and there, but it's really not that hard to understand. Um, you know, and if, if you're finding it really hard to understand, you, you've got to, like the whole works, faith works thing, uh, is it really that it's that hard to understand or is it just that you find that you have to do something with your Christian life problematic? <laughs> something to think about. I mean, 20, 30 minutes, my exegesis for today's passage was done. It didn't take that long to try and understand what James was saying. So while it's not a a mentally challenging book like Daniel or Revelation or something like that, um, it is an incredibly difficult and challenging book to apply morally. That's where James hits you like a Mack truck, you know. Exegetically, it's kind of like roast beef. You, You put it in the slow cooker, 12 hours, pull it out, stick your fork in, it just breaks. It's effortless. It's good. It's easy. But not so much when it comes to applying. It may be simple, but it's not simplistic. Far more challenging is the moral application. But you can't get the application until you first have the understanding, but just you're tracking. Okay. The end goal of Bible study is not understanding, it's application. That's where James comes in, that's where James hits us all, that's where James makes us all very uncomfortable. If you haven't been shaken up by James yet, you haven't been listening. This is bare-knuckle, street-level stuff. Listen to some of these uh, commentary titles for the book of James. I just did a quick search and and here's what what I saw. James, truth in action. Faith that works. Behavior of belief. Belief that behaves. Make your faith. I really like that one, but you can see it's action. It's walking. It's not just talking. James is about an active Christian life. And while James writes his letter in this seemingly seemingly illogical kind of potpourri, hodgepodge, here's an idea, oh, here's another one, where's the link? I don't know. It just kind of goes like that when you read it. You're just like, wow, he's just cranking through all these, like he's just writing down ideas. That just breaks my binary engineering mind. Um, but again, that's probably the genius of James, that it's not calling us so much to analysis as it is to application. Um, so even in, in, even in the format, it's driving us to that. Um, but here's what we've seen so far. Despite all of the, the different ideas that James has in these short five verses, there is a connecting thread, and that connecting thread we've established uh, with these different speakers, and I'm, I'm joining in on that, is this idea of testing your faith. These are all different tests of the faith. Chapter 1, testing your faith by trials and temptations. Chapter 2, Testing your faith by loving others, by your works. Chapter 3, testing your faith by how you speak, by your humility, by your wisdom. Chapter 4, at least the first 10 verses Eugene took us through last week. Testing your faith by resisting worldliness, by humbly drawing near to God. And that leads us now to today where we find yet another test, and that is testing our faith, testing your faith by not speaking evil let me just be real clear on something uh, before we dive in Uh, all of these tests that james has in here for us they they don't redeem us okay i'm sure many of you you know that but how well do you know that because we just by default just turn into these little works righteousness 
people before we know it, you know, our, our Christian, when, when I get asked, how are you going, David, spiritually, I think of, whoa, how have I struggled this week? I haven't struggled too bad. Oh, I'm doing all right. Yeah. You know, by default, we just put ourselves on this, this scale. Uh, how far up on the, the ladder of Christian performance we're going, you know, the Christian message is there is no ladder because the ideal, the top of the ladder, has come down to us so that we don't even have to climb. I mean, that's the beauty of the Christian message. It's not about performance. We aren't saved by these things. I'm sure many of you know that. They don't redeem us. This isn't like, you know, your UAI where you study the book. You study your books in order to go to a test and then hope that you find yourself approved, or your ATAR, whatever it's called these days. Um, I'm not that old, really. It's only a couple of years ago. Uh, that's not what James is about, okay? It's not about works uh, for righteousness' sake. It's, it's not about works for righteousness. We don't work to obtain righteousness. You know, Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you have been saved. But James is an instruction manual for Christian living. From the very first verse, James 1.1, 1, 1, it was written to scattered Jewish believers. That tells us, henceforth, everything after, verse 1, is written to Christians. It assumes your Christian identity. Okay? So everything thereafter assumes this is talking to Christians. Which presupposes salvation. We do not obey the principles in James to obtain salvation. We obey the principles in James because we have salvation and our obedience is not out of duty. It is out of delight, not for legalism's sake, but for love's sake. When the law was given in the Old Testament, it was given like a schoolmaster, kind of like a mirror. But when you, when you wash your face, you don't go to the mirror because that just shows you you're dirty. You go to the washing basin to get clean. Okay, the law shows you you're dirty. James reveals to us, it's not, you know, the law in the Old Testament sense, but this is Christian imperatives, the principles for living. It shows you, wow, we've got a lot of work to do, right? But it can't clean you. This stuff can't clean you, okay? That's not what we're talking about in James. We're not talking about, I'm repeating myself, but it's important. Remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 2. God doesn't just dive into the Ten Commandments. You know, there's actually a, a little preface there, one verse preface, which, which never really gets tagged on. It should really always be there before you ever read the Ten Commandments. It says this, Exodus, 2, 20, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, do not have any other gods and you go through the Ten did you hear that preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, redemption is always prior to righteousness. They were saved first and then the law came. Okay? They didn't have the law to obtain righteousness and that is in stark contrast to every other religion out there, which uh, needs to tick and flick in order to obtain a level acceptable for God. 
Redemption is always prior to righteousness. God brings the Jews out of Egypt and then he gives them the law. Redemption precedes righteousness. It goes redemption, righteousness, and then worship because you can't be righteous until you're first redeemed and you can't worship until you're first righteous. This is Psalm 24. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord but he that hath clean hands and a pure heart? Redemption, righteousness, worship. The law can only educate and inform. It cannot change. This isn't the law, but it is imperative to Christian living. It can educate and inform and hopefully change us who are saved, but it does not change us from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Disclaimer done. All right, James chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, up to... We're only going to look at two verses, 11 and 12. I'm going to read from verse 1, though, so you get the context here. So I'm going to go through what Eugene spoke to us about last week. Chapter 4, verse 1. Read along with me. I'm in the NKJV. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Your lust? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not know that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So last week, uh, in those first 10 verses, um, two key verses stood out to me that really set the context and the tone, I think, for chapter 4 as a whole. And that is verse 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the other verse there was verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What's the common theme? Humility. So as I'm studying chapter 4 and I'm looking at this, I'm feeling the context here is humility. This is talking about chiefly this, this idea of Christian humility. But what does that look like? You know, last week was, I described it to Julie, uh, my wife, she was away, I texted her after the service and said, get online and listen to this on your drive home. Um, It was like a a hammer hitting an anvil from a big South African bloke. Um, And that was kind of like the theory um, that's leading now into today's message What does this look like in action? Well, the first cab off the rank is this idea of speaking evil. 
So that's our test for today. James chapter 4, 11 and 12, testing your faith by not speaking evil. I want you to feel the weight of this classic James punch. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? How you speak about others indicates the health of your relationship with Jesus. That is the thesis statement for today. How you speak about others is indicative of the health of your relationship with Jesus. Did you hear that? Good. That's our message today. And based on these two verses, uh, based on these verses that we're looking at, these two little ones here in James 4, it's, it's telling us that this is not just about this horizontal relational thing we've got going on with each other. It's principally got to do with us and God and our worship of him, which just elevates the seriousness innumerably. Okay? So... This is going to be heavy stuff. When I looked at preaching this for today, I remember walking into the kitchen at home and um, Julie was there and I said, hey, guess what I've got on my plate to preach at Calvary? She said, what? And I said, James 4, 11 and 12. And she's like, what's that? Um, and I said, not speaking evil about other people. And she burst out laughing. <laughs> um, she's not being rude. She's just being honest and true. Um, I really struggle with this stuff. This is, you know, when you think about David Dean, if you know me really well, you think he can be a little harsh sometimes and critical. Um, you know, I was actually on the, the M1, I remember, a couple of years back, driving to Sydney, and I said to Julie, this is when I was just getting interested in all this theology stuff and teaching, and I said, what's, just hit me up, don't hold back, what's one thing I really need to work on um, if, I'm, if I'm serious about getting into teaching and preaching a bit more? And, without batting an eyelid, she said, you need to learn to love others for others' sake. And uh, this is a great way of loving others for their sake, and that is not speaking evil of one another. So if I'm just really transparent, I can be a very critical person. Um, you know, you may not know because I don't run around criticising everyone here or anything like that, but sure, in the comfort of my own home and the patient ear of my dear wife, uh, I like to talk and get annoyed when I'm annoyed, when I'm hurt, when I'm feeling defensive, particularly with work situations. You know, I can be really critical and I can be very aggressive and, and attack and cut down people with my own words. Uh, but as a wise old sage once told me last month, Julie's grandpa, um, a retired professor and pastor, he said, David, you know what? If you're ever going to preach on something, never open up your mouth in front of that church unless it is unless you have a clear conscience that this is something you're actively working on in your own life. And if you have to, tell them that you don't have this yet and you're working on it. So here's me telling you, okay? This is a sermon to me. You get to listen because I'm sure nobody here struggles with this like I do. That was a joke. <laughs> All right. Like a watery bowl of vegetables, so is James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. You know it's going to be good, but it's going to be hard work. <laughs> All right. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. When are we going to start now? Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. This isn't a recommendation. This isn't a cute idea. This isn't even an option. 
Okay? This is a command. It is a divine imperative. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. In typical James fashion, he's returning now to a topic that he talked about a a while back in chapter 3 that James talked to us about, um, about our tongue, about taming our tongue. Now, historically, it's not entirely clear uh, exactly what caused this issue, this kind of speech back then uh, in the first century amongst these Jewish Christians. But whatever it was, whatever, whatever this um, issue was that caused this, caused this kind of evil, malicious speaking of one another, it's clear uh, how it was manifesting. And you can pick up those threads as you study the book as a whole. I mean, you see James 3.13, it, it gave rise to a bit of spirit. Um, James 3.1-12, it was out without verbal restraint. Uh, we saw quarrelling and arguing last week in 4, 1 to 2. And here now in 11 and 12, we see that it was malicious. But regardless of the historical circumstances behind this particular command, the meaning of any passage in the Bible is found in the text, not in the historical backing. That's important. And the problem of speaking evil is not something that is foreign to you or I today. Okay? So this is immensely relevant, regardless of the specifics behind it. Speaking evil of one another, what does that actually mean? It literally means to speak down about another person or to lower that person by your speech. You could sum it up with the word slander, which is defined as the action of a crime of making a false spoken statement damaging to a person's reputation. Now, the Bible has lots to say about how believers are to speak, particularly in the Proverbs and the Psalms, but did you know that in the Greek New Testament, the word for slander is actually the same as the word for devil? Slanderer is translated diabolos, which means backbiter. That's where we get that expression from. Literally, somebody who casts through to make charges that bring down and destroy Satan is called the diabolos, the devil, because Revelation 12.10, he stands before the Lord accusing the brethren day and night, speaking, speaking evil against God's people. Now, speaking, speaking of speaking evil, John, Jesus says in John 8.44 that those who speak evil, who speak falsity, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father are yours, and you want to do them. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar, and what? The father of lies. Okay? Are you feeling... How heavy this is getting, real quick. Welcome to church. Slandering others, speaking evil about others, as trivial as we think that is. You know me, just unleashing to Julie about that particular person at work, at home, in the comfort of my own house, while I'm watching MasterChef and its drama, is principally satanic. That's what we're dealing with here. When you and I get hurt because of what somebody said to us, because of our own insecurities, we just want to pull somebody down because we're feeling like garbage and we want to rip everyone down around us. 
There's usually a couple of things we'll do. This is a broad generalization, but stick with me for the sake of it. You might mix these up, but you get the idea. Sometimes option one, we'll go and we'll pray about it. Option two, if we're feeling hurt for what somebody did to us, we may go to them and confront them and talk to them about it. Option three, we'll go to somebody else and seek wisdom and counsel, maybe a pastor or a friend or your spouse or something, somebody. But then there's option four, and we'll go to somebody else and we'll complain and gossip and speak evil and pull them down because of what they've done. I don't know about you, but my guess is if you're anything like me, you have the tendency to take the easy option four. Why? Why is it easy? Because option one requires the spiritual discipline of prayer to pray about the problem. Option two requires the courage to confront and discuss. Option three requires energy and humility to seek counsel. But option four, compared to all of that, it is easy. It feels good. It's kind of like KFC. You get there, you eat it, you're having a good time. Wait for 20 minutes. Slandering others makes us feel like we're vindicated. And yet God commands us here through James 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Now, let's be real. I mean, you're probably thinking, as I am, as I read these, I'm like, come on. I mean, I'm in the comfort of my own home. I'm just sharing with my wife, with my husband, with my housemate, whatever's going on. I'm annoyed. I'm frustrated. Stop trying to make this so dramatic. I mean, come on. It's, it's not that big a deal. I'm just complaining. It's not like I'm getting in a biffa. I'm not punching anyone. Why is speaking evil so diabolical? You've been a little dramatic, you know, preacher boy. Well, I'm glad you asked. James gives you three reasons why it's diabolical. So don't take it up with me. Take it up with him, and that means God. Firstly, because it judges fellow Christians. This is your outline if you need to take notes. Firstly, speaking evil of one another judges fellow Christians. Secondly, speaking evil of one another speaks evil of the law. And thirdly, speaking evil of one another judges the law. That's three reasons why this is so serious. Let's look at these in turn. The first one's going to be the biggest. The second two will cruise through. First of all, because it judges fellow Christians. Notice that James is specifically commanding, do not speak evil of one another, brethren brothers he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother there's a judgment going on there okay and he uses that phrase brotherly i mean you see that in one form or another three times in this one verse all of us here today this morning who trust in the lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understandings and in all our ways submit to him and acknowledge him we're family we Ah, family. Got all my sisters. Right. Um, we're family. We are family. Calvary Chapel, Newcastle is a big family of families. You, me, the person next to you, the person behind you, the person in front of you. We are family. We have this horizontal relationship with one another that impacts us on a much more profound level than with our non-believing friends and even our non-believing biological family. 
because we are bonded organically by the blood of Jesus. So, my fellow family members, do not speak evil of one another, because to do so is to judge. Simple enough, right? Don't judge. I mean, that's like deliberately scoring an own goal on your soccer team. You just don't do that, man. Come on. doesn't help your team. We may not all get along perfectly. You might not even necessarily enjoy hanging out with that particular individual you're looking at right now out of the corner of your eye. Sure, that's okay. But we care for one another. We care for one another like we do as a family. We love one another. And so we do not speak evil of one another. I used to cringe whenever I heard people say, pastors say, teachers say, you've got to love as a Christian. You've got to love your Christian brothers and sisters. You've got to love people. Because I'm like, what? I love my mum. I love my wife. I mean, we love that guy in the corner who's big and hairy and I've talked to him twice. I mean, what do you mean love him? Come on. What does that mean to love as a Christian, our brothers and sisters in the Lord? And then I realised my problem was that, uh, well, a lot, but one of the problems with that way of thinking is that um, in the English, we only have one word for love, and that is love. And so whenever we want to speak about love or loving people, we have to qualify that word within the context of a sentence in order to explain what it is that we mean by love. I love my mum means something very different to I love Julie, we have to qualify what we mean in English by the word love. The Greeks didn't have this problem. They had four different words for love. Storge love, which is a love of familiarity and a bond, like that between a parent and a child. They also had eros love, which is typically uh, that kind of love that we think of when we think of passion or I'm in love with you. You know, I don't go up to my mom and say, I'm in love with you, because that has that eros connotation. I say that to my wife. It's, it's erotic, that form of love. They had philia love, which is the love of a bond between friends that you have as brothers. Tristan, me, we're, we're bros, you know, in the Lord, we're mates, and we have philia love. Get comfortable with that, Trist. <laughs> And they also had agape love, which is a selfless, charitable kind of love that is unconditional and loves for love's sake. Uh, I don't know if Julie realised this or not at the time, but agape love is exactly what she was telling me I need to have for people when I need to love them for love's sake. I need to work on loving others for their own sake. John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I've given to you that you agape love one another as I have agape loved unconditionally you, that you also agape love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you agape love one another. Smelling what I'm stepping in? That's what it means to love one another as a family of faith here in this church. So don't get weirded out by that idea of love. So look around you now at the people sitting next to you. If you want to get uncomfortable, turn around and look at the person right behind you. Go on. If you're not looking around, you're going to be the awkward one out. 
these people that you're looking at, that you're giggling with, that we're laughing, we're having a good time, these people we have agape love for. That's what it means to be a part of a family of families. You are called to have agape love. They are your brothers, they are your sisters, just like your biological brothers and your biological sisters. You might not necessarily get along, you might not even know everyone here, but that's okay. By virtue of your organic connection in Christ, these people around you, they are your family, you are called to have agape love for them, to care for them, to appreciate them, to consider them and to be burdened for their well-being. Why am I saying all of this? Because agape love is the basis of this command, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Because to do so is to judge one another and thereby presume that you are better than your fellow family members or that you're above your family in some way. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but you are not any better than the person sitting next to you in the Lord's eyes. We are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. We are flatlined at the foot of the cross. Apart from the God-man, Jesus Christ, every single human being is on the same horizontal plane by virtue of their sin and their need for redemption, male, female, Despite what the world may think of Christianity and our opinions on that, we are all one in Christ Jesus and we will all kneel at the foot of the cross, Philippians 2. And I'll be kneeling there with King David, Solomon, Paul. So will you. That's going to be cool. And they're going to be like, dude, don't even waste your time asking me my thoughts on something. Go talk to him. You know, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal as Christians. The church of Jesus Christ, this is important, is only ever sectioned horizontally. Okay? There may be a hierarchy in terms of functional roles. Terry is our senior pastor. For example, we have elders. But we are all equal at the foot of the cross. That is a horizontal distinction for functional purposes. Not because they're better or worse. In fact, the, the way that Ephesians talks about this in the context of the family unit is, is it uses military terminology. In the military, no life is more important than another. But there are functional distinctions to get the job done, and you need that. You know, if anything with a two... I've heard this phrase, anything with a two head is a, is a monster, either cut its head off and kill it or put it behind glass and stare at it. You cannot function with two heads. Okay? There is a reason for functional distinctions in the family unit. There's a reason for functional distinction in the church. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of function, order. You get the point. Any church or church movement that sections the church vertically in terms of importance and equality and value is not only grossly unbiblical in its ecclesiology, in its doctrine of the church, it is, frankly, dangerous and scary. Can you think of a church or church movements that do this? Catholicism? The Pope? Many of the cults? There's even this new thing called the uh, New Apostolic Reformation that's going on at the moment with uh, this presiding body of self-styled, self-appointed apostles over Christendom today, men such as C. Peter Wagner, 
who's heading this up in the States, of the Wagner Institute. There's other guys like Rick Joyner of Morning Star Ministries or Mike Bickle of the International House of Prayer. This stuff is not only grossly unbiblical, it, it's, it's deadly because it gives illegitimate authority to a fallible man. If you're looking for a rebuke, when Terry gets back, go up to him and say, hey, reverend. <laughs> he will be the first to tell you that he's not a reverend. Okay, He's our pastor. There is nothing any more reverend about him than you. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're a family of families, so let's not presume to be over one another in judgment or hierarchy in terms of value. So let's not speak evil of one another because that presumes that you're above them. Okay, That's where we're going with this. Do not do it. That's what James is commanding. Now, if from time to time you speak evil of someone or judge them, does that mean you're not a Christian? Of course not. That's, again, another gospel that's works righteousness. We're not talking about that. Your Christian status is not determined by your ability to not speak evil. Thank God. It's determined by the bloodied cross of Christ and him crucified and him resurrected for our sins. But the present tense here, do not speak evil of one another, it's suggesting that if your life is one of habitually slandering, of gossiping, of lying, of malice, hateful speech... If that's your pattern for communication, then you should seriously question whether or not you're in the faith. This is so, so incredibly serious. 1 John 2, 8 to 11, a new command I write to you, which is which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother and abides in the light abides in the light, and in him there is no darkness. 1 John 4.20, in him there is darkness, sorry. 1 John 4.20, if somebody says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? 1 John 5.1-3, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot him also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we will know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands. Show me a person who is spirit-filled and I'll show you a person who has agape love for people. Show me a person who, is, who does not have agape love and I'll show you a person who is not spirit-filled. When you look around this room, these people that we've just looked at, that, that we're here this morning with, if you truly see them as, as people for whom Christ died, as people who are your fellow heirs in salvation, as fellow members in the bride of Christ that you'll be feasting with on that day, the supper of the Lamb, if you truly get that, you won't choose the diabolical option for. Knowing who you are and who they are will convict you to shut up before you open your mouth. Now let me make an important point. Does all of this mean that we cannot speak of somebody in any sort of negative way? 
or that we cannot judge others in any sort of righteous way. Is James saying that we are not to discriminate or discern between fellow Christians? Are Christians not allowed to be fruit inspectors? You know, you'll know them by their fruit. Are Christians allowed to inspect each other's fruit and make comments about that? You remember the familiar verse, Matthew 7, 1, Judge not lest ye be judged. It's almost become a mantra of the age that we live in. How often do you hear, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. Who are you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong? You're all so hypocritical. Here's what's ironic about how people take that verse kicking and screaming out of its context. Usually the statement of Jesus is thrown in the face of a Christian as a means to justify or cover up some sort of sin or moral disobedience. But the irony is that those who say judge not are making a judgment about you that you should judge not. When that statement of Jesus is decontextualized and wrongly associated with any form of judging, then it's hung itself on its own gallows. You fall on your own sword in making that profession. It fails its own witness test. We must read the Bible in context. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was admonishing the scribes and the Pharisees who were playing God and running this sort of inquisition, making pronouncements of divine condemnation over people. So in response, Jesus said to them, Matthew 7, 5, Hypocrites, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In the same way, James is talking about judgment here. He's not talking about differentiating and talking about judgment with a righteous intent. He's talking about the condemnation of people, slander, speaking evil, malicious. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. It is inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Romans chapter 2. But this kind of vertical judgment, this lording it over one another like the Pharisees are doing in that context of Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. This kind of vertical judgment that James is talking about here as well, it is vastly different from the horizontal judgment that we are called to have as Christians to discern and differentiate between issues and people and sin. When, again, please really try and grasp this when when james says do not speak evil of one another brethren he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother that imperative has nothing to do with exposing sin with righteous intent it has everything to do with slandering with malicious intent and there is a world of difference between the two we are called to be discerning philippians 1 verse 9 and following there is a process for calling out sin Matthew chapter 18. If this is not the case, then it would be a sin for any Christian to discern and differentiate between anything. James would be sinning for recognising this problem of speaking evil and writing about it. Paul would be sinning, oh my goodness, how many times in all of his New Testament polemical writings and correcting particularly Corinthians? I would be in sin for naming the names of those new apostolic guys just a moment ago. 
And on that note of naming people, can I just make this comment as a footnote? I'm convinced that there is nothing wrong with naming names, and I very deliberately did that before. I have nothing personally against C. Peter Wagner. I'm not presuming to judge his Christian status. I just firmly believe he's all sorts of messed up on his ecclesiology. And I'm convinced of that, not because I watched a five-minute YouTube clip. I, I took the time to read his writings, to study what it is that he teaches, to make sure that I understood his position. But, you know, of all of the callings that is repeated the most in the New Testament for pastors and teachers, it is to guard the flock against false teachers. And I know this is divisive because we live in an age of inclusion, not exclusion, or just plurality of ideas, and no idea is more right or wrong than another, which is only a recently new phenomenon. But if I can say, if you're uncomfortable with this idea of naming names or what I've done before... If you're uncomfortable with that, when it's done exposing sin with righteous intent, when it's done with the right intent, if that still makes you uncomfortable, God bless you, but please read your Bible. By my count, in the New Testament alone, Paul personally names seven individuals, all for the purpose of exposing sin with righteous intent. Check yourself, okay? Check yourself and what your intent is. So that's the first reason. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Why? Because he who speaks evil of one another judges his brother. Second reason. He who speaks evil of one another speaks evil of the law. Well, what does this mean? What is the law that James is talking about here? There are 613 laws in the Old Testament, uh, Mosaic case law. 613 laws. Moses summarised them down into Ten Commandments. Micah summarised them down into three, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Jesus summarised them down further uh, when asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, which is the greatest commandment? He didn't reduce it down to one. He gave two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all of the law of the prophets. You and I, we are not under Mosaic law. We are not under Mosaic law. We are under grace. The Gospels, Galatians, Ephesians, Acts... The majority of the New Testament will make this really clear. But that does not mean that the law no longer exists. Okay? Christ did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill them. Matthew chapter 5. And consequently, Paul says that as Christians, we are under a new law. That is the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. What is the law of Christ? It's what he declared to the Pharisees in Matthew 22. Love God, love your neighbor. It's what James has already been talking about here in, um, back in chapter 2, sorry, 2 verse 8, when he says, if, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the context of James, he's already been speaking about this idea of the law in the New Testament sense. And here now in verse 11, 
He talks about the law again. What is it talking about? I believe it is what Paul called the law of Christ. I believe it is what James called previously the royal law. Let's connect, connect all of these dots. James says, he who speaks evil of a brother speaks evil of the law. What's the first point that we considered? Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Why? Because he who speaks evil of one another judges his brother. Okay? Cool. Now, judging fellow believers, that is an unloving thing to do, right? Agape love. We talked about that. Now, James says the second reason we should not speak evil of one another is because speaking evil of one another speaks evil of the law. What did Jesus summarize the law down to? Love God, love people. So do you see when we connect these dots, what's going on here? The connection between the first reason and the second reason this morning. Why should we not speak evil of one another? Because it's, it judges people, which is unloving. And secondly, because it judges the law, which is what? Unloving. The crimes are different. The consequences and the reasons are the same. When you speak evil of a Christian brother or a sister, you're not loving them, clearly. And by consequence, you're speaking evil of the law of Christ in which he calls you to love God and love them. Make sense? Let me ask you, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't summarize um, the law down to just one? That's what they asked him to do, Matthew 22. What is the greatest commandment? Singular. He didn't just give him one. Out of all 613 laws, it is fascinating to me that Jesus did not select one. He did not take the bait and hook of the Pharisees. He repackaged his answer and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law of the prophets. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he say that? Why did he just not give the first? I mean, isn't the second, like, why did he go there? Because hinged on the first is the inextricable imperative of the second. You cannot say that you love God and hate your neighbor. Loving God means by extension that you must love your neighbor. Agape love. This is remarkable. Pick up what Jesus is and James is putting down here. And don't buy into these teachings that are like, well, I'm just, I want to, you know, I'm not about the law stuff, about the doctrine. I just want to be about love and Jesus and not into that law stuff. Trying to divorce the law from love is like trying to take the, the skeleton out of a, a body. It, it doesn't end well. To breach the law is to violate love. Because God gave humanity the law to regulate our love towards each other. That's the purpose of the law, to regulate our love towards one another. I mean, what do you think it means to love God? Maybe not having any other gods before him. Maybe not making idols for illegitimate worship. Maybe respecting his holy name and not taking it in vain. Maybe taking at least a day out of our oh-so-busy schedule to concentrate and spend deliberate time worshipping him. What do you think it means to love others? Maybe it means and looks like honouring your parents who brought you into this world, even if they're not worthy of it. Maybe it means mur not murdering others. That's pretty obvious, right? Maybe it means not taking another man's wife 
to be yours. Maybe it looks like not stealing from them. Maybe it looks like not lying to them. Maybe it looks like being content with what you have and not lusting after their possessions. You get the point. The law is the verbalization of love. Love is a verb, wrote Gary Chapman. It's a good book. Simple, not simplistic. Love must be expressed. It's not just pronounced. If I pronounce I love God, how are you ever going to know if I mean that? To say Christianity is a religion of love and not of law is to fundamentally misunderstand the Bible's teaching and it raises a false dichotomy between law and love which are systemically related. So do you see how relevant James is, how it certainly does not oppose the doctrine of grace, but do you also see what James is saying here? Are you following this line of thought? Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Command. Colon. Why? First, he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. Got it. Second, he who speaks evil of a brother speaks evil of the law. Okay, I'm tracking. If you habitually speak evil and backbite and a malicious gossip, if this is a pattern, then you are violating the law of Christ which verbalizes love and by consequence you are speaking evil of the law because you are reviling it and you are showing no regard for it. All this leads logically to the third reason James commands us not to speak evil of one another. 11d that's my section division anyways, to the end of 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Why? First, because he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. Second, he who speaks evil of a brother speaks evil of the law. And now thirdly, he who speaks evil of a brother judges the law. But, James continues, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Having followed James' deductive reasoning here now, I'm being repetitive, I understand that, but it's good because it means we won't forget. Let me do it again. He starts with a command, do not speak evil of one another. First, because to do so is to judge. Second, because it speaks evil of the law. Thirdly, by implication, you are judging the law and being a judge presiding over the law, which is a position reserved for one, and that is the lawgiver, God alone. You won't hear that kind of reasoning outside of these walls. Our culture teaches us to be candid, to slander, to speak our mind, as long as it's deserved. Morality is relative, it is a choice, it is optional, so make your own judgments, just don't hurt people. Hmm. Yeah. Christianity says no. Christianity says check yourself. Christianity says the redeemed heart doesn't make a judgment unless it's willing to be judged by the own standard, by its own standard. So, fellow family members, hear this word this morning. Gossip, speaking evil of one another, slander, speaking to your wife in the private security of your own home about that person. 
If it's without righteous intent, you are in sin. And this, James has declared to us, is no trivial infraction. It is principal defiance against God himself. Because it comes from a pride-diseased heart of self-exaltation in the place of God. You see, the problem with speaking evil about another person, it isn't your mouth. It isn't the words you're using to communicate or your technique. That's just what your sin looks like when it walks and talks. The symptoms of the disease are not the disease. The problem is your heart. Jesus said, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. That's the kind of, you know, heart that's Frank Sinatra style. The kind of independent heart that says, I I lived a life that's full. I've travelled each and every highway and much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, yeah, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention, I did what I had to do and saw it through without exception. Exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and much more, much more than this. I did it my way. To be fair, old Frankie didn't actually write that song. He just popularised it, and he he actually hated the self-centred message of it too. But that's the inertia of sin, self. That's the center. It just like a you know black hole of gravity just pulls you in. May I encourage you to feed your mind with better songs. Songs of dependence on God, not independence from God. Songs like this. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favour he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for those who trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. There is fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or will walk by his side in the day. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So let me ask you this morning, as we wrap up, and I'm asking myself this question. Do the words coming out of your mouth, do they reveal the scarlet-stained heart of one who sings, I did it my way? Or do they reveal the purged, hyssop-cleansed, whitewashed, heart of one who says I'm happy in Jesus and I trust and obey if you've developed a pattern in your life of speaking evil, I have then know that your problem whatever your problem is with those people it's not out there with them and here comes the Christian cliche it's in here it's a cliche for a reason because it's true When I started talking to Julie in an unedifying, malicious way about whoever, that tells Julie more about the condition of me than it does about that person. And she calls me out on that. 
She's not perfect. I do the same to her. Bless. But boy, oh boy, does she call me out on it. I'm familiar with this thing called the doghouse. <laughs> but despite my protests, she's the obedient one in that situation when she calls me out. As the old saying goes, when you throw mud at others, you don't only get your hands dirty, but you lose ground at the same time. And as somebody once said, morality is a double-edged sword. It cuts the very one who wields it, even as it tries to mangle the other. So what do you say, guys? Family? Friends? Family. Family. Brothers, sisters. Let's not only obey this imperative to not speak evil, but let's not enable this if we hear it. Call it out. Now, don't go get all pious on me, lest you just, you know, forget what we've just talked about. Don't go get all pious. Be very careful how you do that, how you want to rebuke somebody. Speak the truth in love, but, dear friends, a truth may be spoken, but if it's not in love, aside from the fact that you're in sin and you need to repent, it's going to do nothing to transform that error into truth. Always speak the truth in love. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard balance. And if you're not sure you're there, then keep your mouth shut. Ravi Zacharias wrote this, Love is a commitment that will be tested in the most vulnerable areas of spirituality. A commitment that will force you to make some very, very difficult choices. It is a commitment that demands that you deal with your lust, your greed, your pride, your power, your desire to control, your temper, your patience, and every area of temptation that the Bible clearly talks about. It demands the quality of commitment that Jesus demonstrates in his relationship to us. The hallmark of Christianity is humility. We started there. We're still there. We're going to continue there next week. But there is a way to speak truth to one another, and that is from a loving heart with righteous intent. If you're not there, if you don't know if you're there, shut up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again just pause. Pause from our thoughts of what comes after this, after church, lunch, family time, hanging out with friends. We pause now and reflect on who we are, who you are, and that gulf that you traversed to come to where we are. And the condescension of Christ is something that just rocks our mind as we think about holiness, as we think about selflessness, <laughs> to think how unnecessary it was for you to redeem us, and yet you did. It puts into perspective our trivial issues that we have with one another. It also puts into perspective the serious, serious grievances we have with one another. 
We're not called to be best of friends. We're not called to feel the pressure of talking to everyone here. But we are called to have agape love, and that is an unconditional love that is, by definition, selfless. And as we look to your cross and as we marvel on that majestic gulf that you traversed for us, we realise how we are really without excuse in our issues with one another and our lack of humility and repentance and obedience. For thinking better of ourselves, Father, we just ask for your forgiveness this morning. In our sinful ignorance, we just don't really understand. We, we don't intend to elevate ourselves above you, but that's exactly what we're doing. So help us, Lord, by the indwelling work of your spirit. Assault our conscious this morning. When And next time that we're tempted to speak in a way that is not edifying without righteous intent, Assault our conscience again. Let it become something that happens so often that we just don't speak evil of one another. I just ask that we would carry this simple yet challenging exhortation before us now to not speak evil of one another. And when we do stumble, and we will, I've done it since prepping this talk, (laughs) break us with humility and then remake us in your glory our food father is to do your will and to accomplish the work that you have for us may your word be a tool in a carpenter's hand to cut to shave to hammer and build from our inadequacy something worthy that will impact all of eternity It's our request, Lord, and we lay it at your feet, and we believe it's in accordance with your will, and we look forward to seeing how you answer it for each one of us in our own unique circumstances in life. So we give this to you now, Father, as your word, and ask that it would be so and effective in our lives. Amen.